Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that takes it way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today we have our monthly research review, except today we did it a little bit differently. We decided to mix it up and we did a Q&A. So what we did is we put some feelers out on social media and, and our email list and stuff like that, and we gathered together the five most common questions we were seeing being sent in about training, nutrition, body comp, stuff like that, and we decided to answer those with research. So when somebody asked the question, we went out and found what research was on that topic. More specifically, our CSO, Dr. Brandon Roberts, did that part. And then we recorded a podcast on it. He broke down the science and then I gave my explanation from my experience in coaching and he usually rebuttaled either agreed or debated what I was talking about in regards to my experience with this. So we took the most common questions. Like I said, there's five of them. We talked about body recomposition. So burning fat and building muscle at the same time. When you should do cardio, should you do cardio at the beginning of your training session or after your training session, if at all. Uh, We talked about the recovery diet versus a reverse diet. We also talked about intensity versus volume, which one is more important when trying to maintain muscle during a fat loss phase or a cut. And then last but not least, we talked about the compression theory, right? Like, so compression sleeves and stuff like that. Is it, is it even useful or is it just a waste of money? So we dove into these five topics. We took all the research we could find on it. And then we just kind of spit back and forth on these topics. So I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this. I really enjoyed the style of conversation when it comes to a research review because it was less dry. It was much more of a conversation about these topics mixed with some of the science and what the literature actually shows. So do me a huge favor. Obviously, uh, uh, if you're on YouTube, like this video. If you're on iTunes, make sure you just, you're subscribed. You share this on your story. You leave us a five-star rating and view, all that good stuff. But most importantly, hit me up either on Instagram or shoot me an email, Cody at tailoredcoachingmethod.com. And let me know what you think about this. I really enjoyed this Q&A style. We got to cover a lot in a single episode, but I want to do what you guys like best. So if you enjoy this research roundup Q&A, better than the normal research reviews or vice versa, let us know. Give us your thoughts. Give us your opinions. We make these for you. So without any further ado, let's get into this month's research review, which is a Q&A with our CSO, Dr. Brandon Roberts. All right. So today's research roundup um, or research review, I, I, I keep forgetting which one I'm going to say when we start these, but uh, we're doing it a little bit differently. We're doing a research Q&A. So um, I think this was your idea, but I loved it when you brought it up. And and essentially what we're doing is just taking the the top five questions that we receive from people when I posted about this and we've, we've looked at what people have just asked us in general and just trying to find the best questions where really we can throw them at Brandon and let him do what he does by diving into the research and pulling apart everything he possibly can on the topic and then kind of creating a concise answer so we can simplify it for you. Because some of these topics are pretty broad in general. Um, and I assume, and you'll be able to fill us in on this, probably many studies on these different things. And a lot of it is very contextual or just anecdotal too. Like, here's what the science says, but here's what we've been doing. And here's what we've done with that thus far. Um, but they're common topics. So I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this. Uh, just a brief summary so you guys can hear in what you're going to or, or get an insight of what you're going to expect here. We're going to talk about recomposition. We're going to talk about... Uh, doing cardio before or after, uh, your training. Um, we are going to talk about the recovery diet versus the reverse diet, which I think is going to be a can of worms as well. We can kind of dive into a lot of different topics with that one. Uh, we're going to dive into intensity versus volume when it comes to maintaining muscle and strength. I assume during a fat loss phase, and then we're going to finish with uh, compression therapy. Um, 
So a, a, a wide variety, but again, very, very commonly asked questions for us. And uh, now Brandon's going to take it away, dive into the science and, and tell us what he found on these. And we'll start with uh, what is the science behind body recomposition? Okay. So this one, this one was fun. This is probably the biggest when, when we post the Q&A in the, in the website. It's like the most in-depth. Um, and that's because it takes some real uh, reading between the lines when it comes to body recomposition, right? So when we do science, we generally are interested in losing weight, losing fat, or gaining muscle. And it's a lot less on the gaining muscle side because not many people, like in the general population, are going to make their life a ton better from gaining muscle. So that's kind of the first problem in this, this question or this you know, common thing of body recomposition. It's that we don't really test it the way we should because most people don't really care about it. Um, but, you know, we can kind of, again, read between the lines. So body recomp, there's a, there's a good paper by um, Chris Barakat and there's a few other authors on that paper. Um, but he does a really good job, kind of reviews all the literature. Um, but body recomposition mainly occurs when you're new to training um, so those first, you know, year or so, right, when you, when you get your training right, you get your diet right, you get everything just lined up right, um, you can lose some fat, gain some muscle. Um, and the, the kind of underlying reason behind that is because there are two mechanisms. So we have muscle protein synthesis, which you've probably heard about. Um, and we have lipolysis or lipid oxidation or carbohydrate oxidation. So that's breaking down fat glycogen, carbs, things like that. Uh, so what we know from the NPS research, so the protein synthesis research, is that carbs don't really influence muscle protein synthesis, right? So if you're hitting your kind of gold standards, let's say 25 to 40 grams per meal or after a workout, um, you're golden, right? Adding carbs to that isn't really going to influence it. Now, that means that when you're training, especially when you're new, you're adapting, your muscle protein synthesis is going up, you're gaining muscle, and you're good to go. At the same time, you're in a deficit, so your body is using energy from those storage, or those storage places of fat, right? A little bit of glycogen, um, to fuel other things, like other systems. So you have plenty of fuel, you just have to utilize it. But it's not to say that you know, you're taking that energy from fat and turning it into muscle. So when I was a kid, people told me that, and I'm just like, that was such a lie. I'm so disappointed. I believe um, you. Yeah. Or muscle turns into fat. That's another good one. Uh, that, is, that doesn't happen. So basically, body recomposition happens generally in newer people or people who, like, they'll come to us, right? And you've, you've probably kind of done this with your clients, and I've had a lot of clients where they, they just don't quite have it right. You know, they're like 70% of the way there, maybe 65. And then you come in, you fix it up, you give them structure program, and then they, they gain muscle and they are kind of at maintenance. Um, so they can lose a little bit of fat at the same time because they're burning more energy and they're, you know, less efficient per se. Um, that's kind of the, the science behind it and a little bit of the application, but um, I'll let you kind of take it for a minute and let's see what you got. Yeah. So one question I did have before I kind of dive into my opinion on it is, is the reason there's not much direct research on it is you said nobody cares. Do you mean by that? Like when people go into research studies, usually the outcome isn't 
recomposition that they're looking for, they're usually doing a study for weight gain and muscle growth or for fat loss and weight loss. Yeah, that's exactly right. And usually with weight loss, it's muscle maintenance, mm. not muscle gain. So you'll see, you know, these big weight loss studies and you'll be like, oh, you know, in athletes. So like Jackson study, right? The diet break study. It's like they didn't lose any mass and they were doing everything pretty much perfectly, um, independent of what kind of diet you're on. So you're, you're just trying not to lose mass in a weight loss phase or study. Um, but in a kind of performance-based study, you know, or an overfeeding study where they're just trying to put on muscle or something. And there are very, very few studies on overfeeding for muscle gain. Like that's those Antonio studies, with the high, high protein, right? So, you know, that's, I mean, that kind of, that's kind of all we got, um, in terms of people doing not sports, right? Cause that's what we care about too. Cause if you're like a football player, it's not quite the same because you want to be better at football than you want to look in the mirror. Right. So. And it's, it's, it's kind of comes down to finding recomposition results in studies that weren't based on recomposition, which means it's really hard to find because you got to find studies on other shit and just notice that, Hey, these people saw recomp during it. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like when you look at these studies, so that review I mentioned, like there's no primary outcome, which is, you know, the main thing we're studying based on like losing fat and gaining muscle, it's, it's usually one or the other. And the, another big reason that occurs is because, um, so if let's say you are doing a maintenance study, right. And you're looking at muscle gain and fat loss. So that change is going to be so subtle, right. It's going to be, a, maybe you gain two pounds of muscle over 12 or 16 weeks and you lost two pounds of fat. Now, when you average that across a bunch of people, right, if people didn't follow the protocol, you've got other issues, you've just got some heterogeneity in your data, like that's going to wash out, right? So it's really hard to find. Um, and, you know, we may see some new research come out in the future on this, but I'm, I'm hesitant to say that we'll ever have anything substantial to say, this is how you recomp, point blank. Yeah. Um... And as far as like you mentioned, obviously, and I think most people know this, it's, it's more common in beginners. So is it safe to say that it's kind of like a, almost like a sliding scale as you, maybe not even, I mean, I would say yes, as you progress more and you have a longer training career, just from the simple fact that you're going to build muscle at a slower rate, but also as you get leaner, it becomes more difficult because you mentioned like, you know, we know we're not turning fat into muscle, but when muscle protein synthesis is high and we're building muscle while also burning fat because we have fat stores to do so as you get leaner and you have less energy to pull from, does it become harder to recomp just from that simple standpoint? Um, yeah. So, and, and there's not, there's like a, not too much data on this either, but as you get leaner, your chance of losing lean mass increases. Um, especially when you get below, you know, 10% or so, right? Physique athletes pretty much going to lose some lean mass. And it's hard to tease out whether that's, you know, glycogen and the muscle or what exactly that is. We don't have great studies on that either. Um, but yeah, generally as you get leaner or more experienced, right, that change, that delta or this, the change from whatever you started in is going to be way smaller. The, the other thing that comes to my mind too is like a few things. One, like I've seen a lot of people recomp in a long, like there's two, there's two very common scenarios for us, 
with the people we work with. Um, and it doesn't matter if you're a beginner or advanced in this situation, but if number one, if you give me a year and I have that much time to take you through a periodized nutrition and training protocol, it's recomposition from a different definition. So when we're talking about what's the science behind recomp, we're talking more so along the lines of simultaneously burning fat and building muscle in a single eight week, 12 week period, whatever the, the study or the scenario might be. Whereas if somebody comes to me from for a year and I show the results, and I'm like, this person had a crazy recomp. It's because we took them through a diet and then a lean gaining phase, or we took them through a lean gaining phase and then a, a cut, you know, and now they're at their leanest, but at a heavier weight now because we did things properly. Right. And the other scenario is uh, the quote unquote skinny fat people. So the thing to remember about this, and um, I'd love your opinion on this because I might be wrong, but the way I perceive it is kind of like, you know, in a research study, somebody might recomp, but actually not lose any body fat at all in that scenario. Right. Because if they're 170 pounds skinny fat, and then they get to 175 pounds or 180 pounds at the end of the study, with more muscle mass, but they didn't gain any body fat, their body fat percentage does lower. So it's kind of like a recomp. They look leaner and, and it's by visual perspective, it's a recomp. However, technically they didn't burn any body fat while building muscle there. They just built muscle and look leaner because they built muscle. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, those are two great points because when you look at before and after pictures, right, if they're a year apart, you have time to diet hard for 12 weeks or maybe even half a year. And like, right, if you're 250 pounds and you're like 40% body fat, you could probably come down to 175. And then once you figure stuff out, start start training like and fueling your gains essentially. And then you'll be back to 200 and look impeccable. So I, I think you make some some really good points there. And yeah, I've seen that too. So that's, 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 that's interesting. It's like a, it's almost like a numbers trick. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think like, you know, so I did a, I did a photo shoot where I got pretty lean in August, 2019. And, uh, and I, I know I have my weigh-ins, I have all that stuff that I did funny enough, like actually hired Chris Bearcat. He's a good friend of mine. And I had him take me through it. Um, and I'm going to not do like a formal photo shoot, but I'm gonna take pictures when I'm done with this cut. And my hope is that I'm heavier this time around, but I look just as lean, if not leaner. And that'll be a recomp. So this would be a good example. I'll put up a, like a side-by-side -side, and it will be technically a recomp, but it'll be like two years apart. So it's, it's the timeline is very contextual here. Right. Um, and then, you know, we even see recomps with reverse dieting too. And I think like a lot of times what I see here is kind of the same scenario as the skinny fat person. They build muscle or they just fill up glycogen stores and realistically they just get like, they just look more full after the reverse diet. But when I increase their carbs while keeping their fats where they are, they have a higher energy expenditure. They're moving more. So they don't gain any body fat in the period. Um, their, their metabolism sped up, you know, uh, and that gave them this recomp during the reverse. But it's kind of a trickery recomp as well. It's not really recomp. People say, Oh, I lost body fat during the recomp. And it's like, not really. You just, you know, maybe you gained two pounds and you filled up muscle glycogen. Now you're moving more. So you maintained your, your body fat level, but you look great because it's just like a carb loading before a bodybuilding show. You look leaner when you do it. You're not leaner. You just look leaner. It's an appearance thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, that's a, another good point. I think when you, um, so like I did a similar thing between, it's about two years too between my bodybuilding shows right so you get stage shots and you, and i was like 147 or something on stage and then 
two years later, I compete again. I look at myself at the same number and I'm like, oh no, those are completely different things right there. Um, So it's like, you, and I think I put on probably only like five pounds or less of muscle, but when you're that lean, it just goes so well. So, I mean, if, you know, listeners, if you've ever like thought about doing a Photoshop shoot, it's a great way to track your progress. Yeah. Yeah. And a little bit of weight like that actually goes a long way in muscle. Like it it looks significantly different. Um, Cool. I think like at the end of the day, like I always tell people recomp shouldn't like always be the thing you're striving for. I don't always think it's a great goal to shoot for. It's just kind of one of those things that might happen during the, the, the process of reaching your goal. You know, if, if you have a lot of body fat to lose, focus on weight loss. If you do things right, you'll probably build some muscle in the process. You know, if your goal is to get bigger, focus on that. And if you were doing things really poorly before changing things up to the right way might actually show you some recomp as well. Um, and then even like you said, and I think this is where if there's studies on gen pop that we see recomp, I would say this is probably the reason why, but like when we get people that come to us doing circuit training and low carb diets and things like that. And we're like, Hey, let's actually eat more carbs and lift heavier more often. All of a sudden they see this recomp, right. And it's because they're essentially seeing newbie gains, even if they've been doing training for three, four years, it's because they haven't been doing it the way that bodybuilding and science shows us. We probably should for physique changes, you know? Um, but, but unless you have anything to add, I'm good to go to the next one. I think that was, that was perfect. Yeah. I'll, I'll add one other thing because we do see like people who, and I don't want to discourage like group classes and um, you know, the cycles classes and stuff and people who like, that's awesome for general health, but you know, ultimately if you want to gain muscle specifically, like you have to wrap stuff, like you have to push yourself, you know, it's, it's a long-term endeavor. So Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there. I think but, it's a good yeah. job. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to shit on the classes either, but yeah, I, no, I, I I've, been, I've been to a few. Yeah. And, and you know what? Like I always say the same thing. I'm like, cause I talk to people all the time about this stuff. I'm like, if you have fun and it gets you moving, that's great. Yeah. As soon as you get to a point where you don't look the way you want to look anymore, or you're not getting closer to that, that's when you got to either add this kind of stuff into the mix or switch mm-hmm. it for this stuff. Cause you can't track progressive overload, nor is soul cycling going to actually build muscle. And if you want to look quote unquote toned, that's actually just building muscle. <laughs> you know, it's not, once you lose the fat, you won't have the muscle there. So we got to build it. Yeah. And bonus, you'll do better in your group classes too. That's right. That's hundred percent right. Um, okay. So uh, the next one we got is, should I do cardio before or after weight training? Yeah. So this is, I'll uh, caveat this. This is for weight loss, right? So we know cardio is like an awesome tool. Um, however, there's still like a limit to how much you can, how much cardio you can do in a day or a week and how much that's going to result in weight loss, specifically fat loss, right? We always care about fat loss. We, if your scale is going down and you're losing muscle, that's, that's a bad thing. Um, so there's a, there's a limit around five to seven pounds. And that's not like, there's no meta-analysis that's really going to show you that, I don't think, although I should put that on my study list. Um, but just generally speaking, looking at, at kind of the literature and experience, you're looking at about five to seven pounds max from just, you know, doing cardio, like, let's say if you go crazy and do an hour every single day, and you get like 10,000 steps a day, right? 
So, so that's, you're really pushing it there. And then your sustainability drops off, right? If you could do two hours of cardio a day, that's awesome. But that's like 10 hours a week or more. So that's, that's just too much. Um, and the reason that we kind of hit this threshold is called the constrained energy model. Um, and so I mentioned this in our mentorship, uh, but the book Burn by Herman Ponzer, he basically followed um, a tribe around and tried to figure out how much they move and how their metabolism uh, adapts to like basically a hunter-gatherer tribe um, that doesn't have any technology, right? And basically what they found was there was like a point by which they moved so much, but they didn't lose weight or they kind of maintained their, their body because they had adapted to it, right? They're, they're walking like 20,000 steps a day or something ridiculous and eating, I think they're eating like 1,500 calories a day. Um, but still, it's not like they were super duper duper lean. It's just they had adapted to it. And so as we lose weight, Right. We also want to be careful not to, and I'm going to caveat this too, but not do the same exact type of cardio all the time because there is an efficiency factor. It's minimal. Like it's like probably like five to 10%. Um, but when you're losing a lot of weight, that, that can make a, a difference over a long period of time. Um, so in terms of before, after weight training, to answer the actual question, um, it doesn't really matter, honestly. If you have, if you can work out okay and you feel good, you can do your cardio first. Or maybe if you're like an endurance type athlete and you just care a little bit more about running or swimming or whatever it is, um, you could do it first. But you know, I don't, I don't think there's a big hindrance to doing cardio before or after weight training. So. And for this constraint model, you're saying you said seven pounds. So you're saying that's kind of like you can lose up to that point and then your body starts to kick in and adapt and it's hard to go past that through just cardio. Yeah. 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 So that's when you have to have to start adding in diets. And I'm sure there's some examples of like extreme people who do cardio, like, you know, 20 hours a week or something and lose 10 pounds or 12 pounds. But in general, and the approach we take is like you, you get your macros and your calories right, and then you start adding in some cardio if you're not doing any, right? But then you're not going to assign a client five days of cardio unless they're really digging, right? Yeah. So that's, that's that kind of idea behind it. Yeah, I think I, have, I, I do have one client right now doing five days. She has a show in July. So we're approaching. Yeah. So it's like it's a completely different scenario. Um, I like that. I think like as far as in my experience, and this is purely anecdotal, so you can, you can kind of throw science back at me if I'm incorrect or if you agree. Um, the way I look at it is like, it's, it's all specific to your main goal. So if your main goal is weight loss, it really doesn't matter, like you said, especially if we're just looking at how many calories are you burning. Um, if your goal is fat loss, and that also includes maintaining strength or muscle, it may not matter, but it might be safer to put it on the, the back end. Um, I would say if it's high intensity cardio, it definitely matters because the harder you train and the better your output during the training, the more muscle you're going to be able to maintain. Now, your high intensity cardio might not be performed at as high of a standard if you do it afterwards, right? So either one of them is going to take a hit because they come second. And that's where you go, okay, what matters more to me? The calories burned or the muscle maintained? If you're doing the diet for an extended period of time, I'd probably say it should be the muscle maintained. Um, 
because you're going to burn the calories anyway. And like you said, diet is going to be the main driver of fat loss anyway. Um, and then I would even throw out the caveat of, or the scenario of a sports specific analogy, or, you know, I was talking to a client today, he's uh, training for uh, Marine Corps stuff. Right. And he, for him, and I don't do his training, but for him, he might actually want to do cardio first because to, to him, he might have to be able to throw some like load around quote unquote, or weights after being exhausted from cardio. So for him, it might, it might fuck up his performance, but that might be the whole point, right? I've even heard of football, uh, strength coaches actually throwing like safe forms of explosive movements, like cleans or snatch, things like that at the very end, or even throws at the very end of a, of a strength training session because their men were fatigued. So what's the point of that? What's well, fourth quarter and you still got to be able to be explosive and powerful. That's the whole point, right? So you're going to adapt and, and be able to get better at it. Even if you're not your best at fourth quarter, get better in the fourth quarter by doing it like this. So it's very sport specific, but um, that would be my opinions. In most cases, I typically suggest people putting it on the tail end of their training. Cause I want them to be able to train as hard as possible in the strength work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I would tell most people um, or have most people do. I don't, I think I've worked with a couple runners where I put it first, but that's like, so it's super rare. Um, but, you know, in terms of strength and muscle growth, right? Like I said, you want to do your training with weight training first. Um, and honestly, if you, if you can uh, do your cardio on an off day, like a non-training day. So if there's any kind of interference effect, which I'm not sure there is in most people, like when you get high level, there is, um, but for you know average client, even if you're intermediate trained, you're probably not going to have a huge interference effect. Um, the other thing I'll say is uh, be careful with the hit training. So I'm seeing seeing a rise in people who want to do hit like four times a week or something, and like a finisher is fine. Like I think you do a like an aerodyne finisher or something, right? Like a couple minutes. Um, so I started doing that, but to do 15 to 20 minutes of hit like four days a week or more is really, especially for females, really pushing it. And you got to be careful with injuries and, and just like cost of the benefit, you know, ratios. Yeah. I think the way I would program it actually would surprise people too, because if I have somebody who maybe is in a maintenance phase or their main focus is strength and maybe we're not going through a super hard diet, like they want to get leaner, but their main focus is like, let me just get shit in order and get healthy. I like throwing finishers on a leg day where we are doing the sled or an aerodyne bike because one, it's more volume from a concentric perspective. So it's not hurting the joints. Um, but also it gets a little bit of conditioning in there. You know, we do five rounds of 10 to 15 second sprints on the air bike. You're really only doing less than 10 minutes. Same thing with the sled. But for somebody's like, I still want to maintain some aerobic and metabolic conditioning. It's like, cool. Let's throw a little bit here. It's not going to make you a super athlete, but it's going to help you stay conditioned and kind of get the minimum, minimum effective dose. While when somebody goes into a fat loss phase and they're really serious about losing body fat or weight, I'm much more likely to focus on knee and add low intensity cardio. Right. And that's where, like you said, like, I mean, you could, you could walk for 30 minutes or 40 minutes before your session and you'd probably be totally fine. Like there'd probably be no difference there. Cause you're just walking, you know what I mean? If anything, you're warmed up. Um, and that's probably going to be more effective for fat loss, not because it burns more fat than high intensity or anything like that. Um, and that's like a whole different argument because, but we know at the end of the day, it's basically the same shit. Um, it's because it's just less fatiguing 
And if you do a lot of hit, like your nervous system is crushed, you just feel lethargic. Like it, you will burn out after a while. It's very hard to sustain. So trying to sustain hard cardio and hard training just doesn't make much sense. Pick one, you know? Um, yeah. There's not that many people that are like, I really want to be great at high intensity intervals. Like, like no, you want to, <laughs> you want to lift heavy and build muscle. Um, cool. I think that's perfect. Um, so uh, number three, we got, what's the difference between a reverse diet and a recovery diet. Yeah. So I had this, oh, I was on another podcast while long while ago. Um, and this came up and I actually, I completely botched it. Um, so I, I feel like I have to redeem myself here. Um, so the recovery diet, I think as far as I know, uh, was first coined by 3DMJ and basically the idea and we use like, so, um, Jeff is one of their coaches. He coached me through my two bodybuilding shows. Um, and the idea is when you're really, really lean, right? Not many people get really lean. Like for your shoot, you'll probably get lean enough to do like a mini recovery diet. Uh, when you're really, really lean, you just need to put fat on. Like you need to eat and for your body to be normal, you have to just gain fat because your body needs some semblance of fat and the work intake coming from that to recover from being lean for a really long time. Um, so, you know, we see kind of like reds in women is an issue because they're underfed for so long. I mean, it can happen in men too. So we have to be really careful. And when we're really lean, a recovery diet is just like, okay, you need to gain like seven pounds in seven weeks or less. And we're going to throw your calories back above or at maintenance whatever we think that is and we're just gonna let you go like you're just going like we don't care you're gonna like psychologically it might be a little hard <laughs> um but we're just gonna get back to normal homeostasis to where we're not you know having all these hormonal issues and things like that so that's a that's a recovery diet um a reverse diet is um so there's a couple of definitions but basically where you increase your calories to a point, but you're not really gaining like substantial weight. Like maybe you gain a pound or two from like, like you mentioned earlier, the glycogen effect or having more um, food in your stomach, right? There's a couple of factors that influence weight, um, but it's just like walking your diet back up so that you are at the highest calories you can be at without gaining weight. And you know, that means that you feel good, you work out good, you're moving more, all these other things are happening. And that's the main difference from my understanding of, right, the, because this isn't, this isn't in the science literature. This is just like, um, gen pop science, basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I love what 3DMJ did with that, but I will say, I think that, uh, coaches who work with, far less or no bodybuilders at all took that and ran with it when it probably wasn't applicable to their clientele. And I think the problem with that was, is that 3DMJ didn't specify that, which they don't need to because they work with bodybuilders, but there's people who follow who don't know that they only work with bodybuilders and who took that as the gospel. Right. Um, so I think that like both both routes are totally fine. You know, I think that, um, there's, there's been 
I've had some people that go on stage that I, of course use a recovery diet with, and there's been some gym pop that I'll use it with when I get somebody that comes to me who is, I, I've had it with multiple high, higher level CrossFit athletes, even recreational athletes, but they're like, I mean, they're freaks. They're, they're, they are athletes and they are lean and I see where they're at and they definitely feel like shit, but it's crazy. Cause I, my, my initial response is how on earth are you doing what you do in CrossFit eating that little? Like it, it's, it's insane. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Physiologically speaking, it makes zero sense, but, uh, especially let alone, I can't do half the shit and I'm well-fed, you know, but those, those scenarios I do as well. Um, and, and there's even been times where like, I still like to make an initial jump. Like my, my typical way of reverse dieting a normal client who gets to the end of their diet. So I just had somebody who got not shredded, but she got lean. I mean, she got leaner than she's ever been. And she definitely was eating less than she should eat to sustain that. Um, so it came time to reverse diet and she, she wasn't having crazy. And this is the other thing I think people need to look for when you're trying to decide, do I do a recovery or reverse diet, figure out the symptoms the person is experiencing, right? Do they have low sex drive? Do they have high irritability? Are they super hungry? Are they having cravings and adherence issues, poor sleep? Like those are all bad signs, right? So when I, kind of almost take her through an interview and I'm asking questions at the end of this diet when we're getting ready to reverse. I ask those questions, you know, half of them are totally fine. Training has been kind of shitty and she's starting to have cravings and her irritability is high. So I'm like, okay, it's affecting you. I know that, but you're not in a dangerous place that I'm worried about your hormones or anything like that. And so my take on it is kind of like this, like, okay, we started up here at your old maintenance. We ended way down here at your current deficit, right? Your current caloric balance. And your new maintenance is somewhere in between, right? So if I go right in the middle of that, let's say it's 1400 and 1800, which is pretty small gap, but let's say the middle would be 1600. I might jump right to 1600 or I might jump to 1500, like, but a good initial bump. And then I'll baby it as, as much as I can until they're comfortable, satiated, and they're not fat because at the end of the day, they lost fat and they don't want to gain it back. So we don't need to put fat back on them. And in a lot of gen pop situations, that actually makes them unhealthier. Whereas in a bodybuilder's situation, it makes them healthier. So um, I think it, it's just, it's solely dependent. And I just highly recommend people trust the biofeedback and the symptoms for, for basing your prescription of what you want to do. Um, and as far as I know, I don't think there is any re reverse dieting research or literature yet. Is there? Not that I've seen that. I think the closest I mean, the closest thing to it would have to be like the Atkins reintroduction of carbs. But even then, it's like, kind of not really, not really at all. Um, yeah. So no, we might see some of that um, because, you know, we've got some scientists who are like in the, in the kind of coaching realm. Like they listen to coaches and they'll take coaches' ideas and, and use them or just change them a little bit and then test them, right? So I think Bill Campbell does that really well. Um, but you know, what else I was going to say? Yeah. So, but you make, you make some, some really good points. I think that's probably where the problem was. It was just the misinterpretation of population. And then it just like goes like wildfire. Right. And, if, and then people just do whatever they want. And like, it's really exciting to be like, wait a minute, you're telling me I can diet, right? I'm, I'm going to go from 1800 calories to 1400, like you said. And then I can recovery diet right back to 18. Like, doesn't that sound amazing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, right. But most people, and I think 
Um, so one of our uh, people in the mentorship uh, asked this question. I want to make sure I, I cover this sufficiently. Um, but what is a reverse dieting protocol, right? So kind of like you said, you go, you diet for a certain period of time, you, you then have this new maintenance, but you've got to figure out what that maintenance is, right? Because if you're still losing weight, you're still in a deficit, which is a problem that some people have. So you take somebody down, you get them down to X number of calories. And they're there for, you know, maybe two weeks. It doesn't need to be long, just long enough for you to know they're not going to lose or gain weight. And then you can kind of start working their calories back up. And if they're in a deep deficit, maybe you start with 150, 200 calories, like you said. Um, and, you know, you also have like the whole cardio factor where you start pulling out cardio. So you have to be careful with the different factors involved. Um, but then you just slowly, like you said, walk people back up. So now they're at, you know, 1600 calories. Now, okay, they're, they're not gaining weight for two weeks. We're going to go to 1650 or 1700. And then sometimes what you see is you can actually push people pretty dang high. Like I've had some people where they'll come to me at maintenance, right? And it'll be like 2000 calories. And I will just, assuming they track correctly, I will just push their calories all the way up to like 2,500. And to me on paper, like nothing's changed. Like their biofeedback's a little better, but their step count's kind of the same. Their workouts are a little better, but nothing drastic has changed, but they're not gaining weight. They won't gain weight for like six weeks. We can't, you definitely can't do that with everybody. Like I can't do that with myself. So, yeah, I think, I mean, the metabolism in general is very individual. Um, and I hope they, they do some studies with this. And, and it's, it's funny you said that because I was going to bring up Bill. I think he would be one to do it. He's been really cool. Uh, to get to know because he'll even text me and ask me questions about those kind of things and then like what he's gonna try to do or implement and it's really cool to be somebody that can like give him ideas or like he can spitball ideas off of because I want to influence what research is going on you know as coach I think the hard part would be I mean you got to take people through you know an eight to 16 week diet before you can even take them through an eight to 16 week reverse diet so the study length is going to grow just from that so it's almost like all right well, let's get a population that we can do two studies. We'll do a study on dieting, trying to find some kind of outcome, and then we'll immediately put them into a reverse diet study. But, um, but no, I agree. I think uh, there is times, like I, I remember people used to call it uh, uh, five carb you to death. And it was basically like the, when they first started reverse dieting, it's like add five carbs every week, like so small that people would stay really lean, but it doesn't really satisfy you or improve your biofeedback. So there's been times where I will go like five to 10 grams a week, but it's very rare situation. And it's a situation where somebody is very, very, very focused on staying lean. Um, and their biofeedback is totally fine. It's purely because like, I'm like, I just want you to have more calories to work with if you need flexibility or if you want to train harder, like eventually. So we're going to go really slow because we already got you to the point that I feel good with and I'm fine with from a health perspective, but let's just nudge you up slowly. Um, but if I had to give, and I think we said this to her originally, is like, it's, it's hard for me to say, here's the formula or here's the protocol because it, it, it's so dynamic and individual. It's hard to say, but if I had to put a number, I would say an adjustment every one to three weeks, depending on how well they respond to the adjustment. And I would make a five to 10% caloric adjustment, usually via yeah. carbs or fat. Um, perfect world scenario. If you want to stay really lean during a reverse diet, you keep their fats in a place during the diet to where they're not super low and you need to like bring them up, but just to the lower end of like, they're fine and healthy there, but you definitely don't have a high fat diet. 
And then you just reverse your carbs up and you just slowly but surely bring your carbs up as high as you can. And those are most likely going to be more productive for what we're all after here with body composition changes. Um, and that usually works pretty good for, for staying pretty lean. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think, I think we, we covered that one. Like I, I feel like I can put a nail in it and done. Yeah. I agree. Um, all right. So, uh, number four we got is, in, is intensity or volume more important for maintaining mm. muscle size and strength. And I really like this one because, um, I've always seen this as something that either one works and it's so like, I'm interested to see what you pulled together because I've asked this question to probably every single coach I've ever worked with, because I always am just curious of what their opinion is. And I have my own opinion and I've, it's really been 50, 50. I've had so many people say intensity. I've had so many people say volume. Um, so I'd be curious to hear what you came up with on this. Yeah. So there's not a ton of research on it, um, outside of the like tapering research. Right. So you have to like, like you, you dig into this research, you're like, okay, well, I can't count all these powerlifting studies that where they're tapering because that's that doesn't really help. It's not like a week or two. Um, so now I've got to dig deeper, and there are there are basically like two good studies I'd call it maybe three. Um, one is by Morehouse, and what they did was they trained people kind of oddly for nine weeks, and then they reduced frequency, volume, and intensity by fifty percent for eight weeks, and as you could probably guess, they lost most of their strength along the way um, and most of their muscles, uh, muscle mass. But that doesn't really answer our question, right? So that's like all three. Um, there's another one, and this is out of the lab I did my postdoc in, where they trained uh, newbies or untrained people for basically 32 weeks, which is a long time, right? And the first, I think, 16 weeks, they trained them normally. They did three sets of 10 to 12, like full body, three times a week, a very like exercise medicine-y type protocol. And then the second 16 weeks, they took the groups and they split them out. And one of them did like the third of the volume, so like one full body um, session per week. One of them did two full body sessions a week, so that's two thirds. And they're keeping... Kind of intensity the same they're just reducing the volume right and the frequency because they're kind of tied together in this case um but what they found in that study was that keeping your intensity high but reducing your frequency helped you maintain not only strength but muscle mass too so again that's untrained people it's a long really good study it's probably one of my favorite studies ever um but it doesn't it still doesn't quite translate to like you and i um, so we don't have an awesome answer, but I think, and, and I've heard this kind of on, in, in my circle of knowledge people is that if you decrease volume, as long as it's not too long, um, it's better. So that's, that's kind of my take. If, if, if I had to choose one and decreasing volume by, I don't know, 20, 30% max, um, for as long as I want to. Got it. I would, I think that like one of the things I would propose as a question for it or take into consideration is if I look at the research about building muscle, we know that volume is more important 
I would, I don't even know. I mean, you can say it's more important because it works better, but if volumes equated high intensity training with low volumes can actually be the same, technically the volume's the same, but it's just how you're programming it. But I guess my point is, is when I think of high intensity, I think of like, we're doing more sets, but we're doing low reps, heavy weights, right? Um, that can build the same amount of muscle as less sets, high reps, because if volume's equated, we know that it's just that doing higher volume programs, higher reps, lower, it's more productive of your time, right? It's easier to manage and it's less fatiguing because it doesn't take so damn long. So for me, I've always kind of agreed with you and said, like, I'm probably going to lean on more of a higher volume approach because it tends to be easier to do and manage when you're in a deficit to, to equate to the amount of volume that you need. Um, however, I've, I've also been a fan of having some higher intensity sets in there just from a standpoint of like, let's, let's keep a few sets of like low reps or like a few exercises where we do, you know, like maybe we keep deadlifts or bench press with low reps, ones that we know they're not really great high rep exercises anyway, barbell compound lifts, just to maintain some of that neurological strength, um, for a few reasons. One, if it is better and we just don't know yet, then at least we have a little bit of it, but two, you feel good when you can lift heavy shit. So like, let's test that and just make sure we're maintaining some of that strength during the deficit and not losing it. Um, but, but what would be the reasons uh, of, your, of your circle that they say they lean on more of a volume-based program? So I may have accidentally said volume, but I, I meant to say it was intensity. I don't actually remember. Um, you did say volume, but that's okay. Okay, that so I'm, I, I, meant, I meant intensity. It's because of all the reasons you said. Um, but basically, um, because you're recruiting muscle mass, right? If you're lifting heavy, you're recruiting most of your muscle, maybe not all of it, but more of it. Um, when you do a bunch of volume, like if you go to failure, sure, like that's that's going to be the same esque type adaptation, and that's where we have the you know the high end in, high intensity, low volume, and kind of the, the study you mentioned, um, and that's why they're equivocal because you go to, you're going to failure with the low, um, low weights, so. Yeah, I would I would correct myself then and say that intensity matters more than volume, um, and that's what kind of what the research shows too. But we don't have a lot of data either. So that makes sense because basically, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're basically saying when we do high intensity heavyweight stuff, we're recruiting more muscle fibers that we already have right? It is something where the potentiation effect, people talk about like during a session, like doing some like heavy singles and then following it, or it's like a, I want to say it's called a contrast set where you do like a heavy single at like 90% and then peel weight and you do sets of like six to 10 at a lower weight for your next one. And it's because you're recruiting muscle fibers and then exhausting them. Um, But when we do high volume, we're trying to build new muscle fibers, right? Which isn't going to happen if we're in a deficit. Yeah, you're yeah, you're not gonna make your muscle necessary. I mean, again, if you're recomping, sure, but you're not your muscle fibers aren't really primed to grow in a deficit. They're like, you know, trying to hold on because it's pretty inefficient for them to break down muscle for, for energy, but they like your body will do it at a point. Um, it's just you don't really want to go there. And if we look at just people who lean on more of a high volume approach while dieting um, minus Mike Isretel. I know he does, but I would also like, I don't see him doing a lot of training to failure. I know he trains really hard, but he's, I mean, he's really big on RIR and being specific to that. 
But if I think of people like John Meadows or Jackson Pios, we talked about earlier, I know he, he's very big on high volume stuff. Um, they both do a lot of failure training, like mm-hmm. a lot. Um, granted, it's on things that are probably safer to do failure training with, but I guess that's the differentiator we have there, right? The people who are in favor of high volume, you have to ask yourself, are they taking it to failure or beyond? Um, and is that what you want to do? Which it's fine. Like, you know, honestly, I tend to enjoy that because I don't do a lot of like compound lifting anymore just to like save my body. But I, uh, I love taking bodybuilding shit to failure. It's just, it's fun to me, but it's also not going to hurt me. Like we did this just stupid arm circuit yesterday to the point where I couldn't, I actually couldn't do a full curl because I couldn't bend my arm past 90 degrees. (laughs) Like it was just, it was so dumb. And then I was fine. Like 20 minutes later, it went away and then I felt fine, but it was just fun. Like listen to music, Boston doing that. We absolutely went to failure on those. Um, but there's a time and a place for that. Yeah. Yeah. And as you diet, it's harder to recover. So, I mean, you don't want to burn out on the kind of like training side, but also you're, you're burning your body out on the kind of dieting side too. If you go to a whole bunch while you're dieting, I don't, I don't necessarily recommend that. I, I like the RIR approach quite a bit. Um, that's what I use. So usually like, two rir maybe one on bodybuilding stuff like yeah i'll, I'll go to failure it's fun yep and that's exactly how i am too 100 the same um so like just to to like leave on a like actually like black and white answer um volume as you go into a deficit and you're chasing fat loss and you're trying to maintain muscle volume is going to have to drop regardless because you just can't sustain as much volume intensity yep um, should try to stay as high as you possibly can but because you're lowering volume alongside that you should be able to recover from it Yes. Correct. Yeah. Cool. Um, and just so people know your, uh, trap bar deadlift might not be as heavy as it was when you were in a surplus rep maintenance and that's okay. I think intensity is relative to the state you're in. So that's why using RIR and RP is very helpful rather than saying, well, this is supposed to be 90% and I can't lift it. So I can't, you know, it's. Yeah. Yeah. I like to, so people who get nervous about losing strength, I like to do re- like relative to body weight, right? Because if you lose 20 pounds, but you're maybe, you know, like 5% weaker, like in the grand scheme of things, you're stronger per body weight. And that mentally helped me for a long time. Um, but, you know, it's going to, we haven't quite figured out, at least I haven't, maybe somebody else has, um, why losing weight changes, it changes your biomechanics, but it also influences your strength, even if you don't lose muscle. So that's kind of like a, a gap in the research that I don't know if anybody's studying, but it's kind of like a eh, gap anyway. Yeah. yeah. And and I've had a lot of people lose weight and hit PRs. It, there's just a certain point where that stops. And typically in my experience, it's, it's when my assumption is when we get to a place of the energy demands being lower uh, or I'm sorry, the energy demands being higher than the energy, energy consumption. Like how much you're pulling in is just not enough to support what you're trying to do in the gym. But if you're lowering volume properly, you might be able to actually sustain that for longer. Um, I can think of a couple situations off the top of my head where they were hitting PRs and they were competitive power lifters. And I know that they were periodizing their program properly because they were in a deficit. And that's probably why it didn't affect them. And they got stronger because they were doing what I'm saying right now on the back end. I just I didn't do their training, so I couldn't say for sure. Um, but I think that's super helpful. Um, 
All right. And, uh, last one we got today. Number five is compression therapy useful. Yeah. So, uh, when I saw this, the question come up, came up and you sent it to me, I was like, this is kind of interesting. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent like sure. So I, so I had to actually like dig in. Um, and in the, the write up, I have a bunch of like links to studies and stuff. Um, but I think the one that stuck out the most to me was there is a meta-analysis on lower limb compression garments. And, you know, these range quite a bit. I don't know if you've ever seen like the, the ones that go all the way down your legs that are like Normatec, like that's intense. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, this meta-analysis found that uh, compression garments are not associated with improved performance. And that was in like, endurance outcomes, power outcomes, or just RPE or any other stuff. So I don't think right now we have great data to say it's useful um, in terms of enhancing performance. Now, there is some data to suggest it helps enhance recovery. And, and so you, you're probably thinking, well, that would mean it enhances performance, right? Well, they're just not quite linked yet. And I don't, I don't know that they will be, but there's a good study that shows that it reduces muscle damage, right? Garments, uh, compression garments reduce muscle damage. But again, like you and I, when we go in the gym, as long as we're not doing anything weird, we don't really have a lot of like muscle damage, muscle soreness, like we shouldn't. So us using pressure therapy may not help as much as like a new person coming in. Again, and you're like just crashed after every workout because you're just gaining muscle all over the place. So it might be useful there. Um, there is a study with actually the Normatec um, from one of my friends who, so Cody Hahn, who writes for Weightology and I've known him for a long time. Um, and they found that it did, uh, again, reduce soreness, but also help with flexibility. So just like, which would probably translate to like general movement um, being easier. Um, but again, nothing like huge there. So I think it, it's, it's, neat and it might be useful if you're super sore but it's not going to do anything amazing um at least not yet so that's my kind of like take the the study that showed improved recovery is it a short-term study like it was it just one training session then they used it afterwards um i think it was yeah i'd have to pull it up for sure but i'm pretty sure it was the only reason i ask is because for listeners they'd have to have a long-term study using this repeatedly to show an improve in performance, right? We can see that recovery yeah. improve, but unless we see them train better the next day because it versus a group that didn't use them, can't really say how effective it was. Um, I would also say there's like a placebo factor in here too. You know, like if, yeah. if you don't know any better and you wear these because somebody sold you on it, it's like, it might help because placebo is a real thing. Um, what about knee sleeves? Cause that's a type of compression garment, I would say. Um, Squats. So they, they do tend to help people, but the research kind of shows that it doesn't really matter that much. Like you might get like a 2% bump or something, but also what's it. So if you put a knee sleeve on, you're either going like, like your, your control is just no knee sleeve. Like that's not quite like, like you mentioned, it's not quite the same. So you would have to do like a really tight knee sleeve or just like, I don't know, volleyball knee pads or something it's like kind of loose, you know? Yeah. I, I think that one's placebo to be honest with you. I think yeah. uh, the reason I think so too is because I, so I've, I've had two knee surgeries, so that's why I wear them, but there was a day where they weren't in the spot they normally are in. So I didn't remember to put them on. 
and I squatted great. And then afterwards, I remember sitting down and going, damn, I didn't wear my knee sleeves. I felt totally fine. It just was, you know, part of my routine. Like, and, and I think there's, you know, every like lifter has that. You, I mean, you guys see power lifters like step up, they put their foot down, twist three times, exhale, tighten the belt, <laughs> next foot. You know, there's like, there's like a thing. And there is something to say about uh, routines and placebo effects. They talk about athletes tying their shoes specific ways. They, I mean, this is the power of like a successful CEO doing a very specific routine, sitting in the same spot while he drinks his coffee and doing all these different things. Um, it does play a role. So I know for me, like when it's squat day, I go through my warm up, then I walk out. I, I did it today. I walk out because it was squats before we did this podcast. I, ha- I have like where my knee sleeves are. Then I put my weightlifting shoes. Then I grab my belt and I don't even know if I need the belt. It's just at a point where like I have my routine and my flow before I back squat and I feel better when I'm in my routine, you know? So there's something to be said about that. Um, but I've, I've dug into it. I've also heard Greg Knuckles talk about it on stronger science and nothing I've, I've read or seen or heard is very convincing that they're actually doing anything. Um, but again, to me, it's, it's also one of those things like I'm still going to wear them because if they're there and I see them, I, th- I know I'm going to feel better putting them on. So fuck it. I'm going to do it. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there is a very strong power to rituals and we might have to, we might have to dig up some, dig up some studies on that, but like the routines you mentioned, it's, you know, you look at the elite athletes, they, most of them have some type of routine, right? If it's like LeBron and his, his chalk thing or, you know, that different people have different things, but um, it, it's interesting. It really is. Did I, I have a very, very specific routine every night and every morning. And my day is always more productive when, when it happens, you know, like yeah. I can go through those things. I just do everything better. I'm in a better mood. And it's, it's little weird things where it's like, I wake up and my clothes are already folded and ready for me here. When I go downstairs, the coffee's right here. I sit right here with this specific blanket and it's like, I have yeah. this thing, you know, and it's like, it helps. So, um, I would love to see some of the research on that, dude. So even if you just send me it, I would love to. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll have to dig it. I have a couple of neuroscience friends that that's right up there in Mali. So I'll see if I can dig some stuff up. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I, I think, I don't, I don't know when it's being published, but our, um, our daily challenge thing kind of influences that and kind of ha- encourages people to have a, a routine and a ritual and like, you know, it just makes life better. Like I have one in the morning too. So that's, that's yeah. fun. And it's literally like, this sounds dramatic, but it's literally changing people's life. I get people messaging me every day that are in the challenge that are saying it's literally changing how they operate day to day, how they treat people, how their energy is. So it's like, it makes a big difference and it's simple things. It's just consistency, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but dope. I think we crushed those. Um, that's great, man. Uh, let, let us know guys, for those of you listening, let us know if you like this Q and a style um, just as much better worse than the research review. We always are looking for you guys' feedback so we can continue doing better content for you guys so you can get more out of it. But um, otherwise, I'll link Brandon and I's Instagram handles in the show notes. So if you like this episode, screenshot it, post it on your story, tag us both so we can share it on ours. We'll catch you guys next time. Peace.